I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. Here on Ashes, Ashes, we are constantly discussing what looms as the imminent end of the world, collapse of our civilization, and much more. It's a story so much of death and tragedy and catastrophe. But for any of that pain to occur, we need a beginning of the story. And the beginning of these stories are always ones of life, of hope, of growth. This episode tackles these concepts of growth. Of death. And it looks at these ideas from the perspective of doom itself. Because this week we're discussing overpopulation and a world rapidly running out of resources. And any discussion of overpopulation, population growth, and limited resources must begin with Thomas Robert Malthus, a parson in 18th century England. When he wrote an essay on the principle of population, he put forth a fairly simple idea. Population, Malthus said, grows geometrically, meaning that growth involves combining numbers through operations like multiplication or even exponentially. On the other hand, the amount of food that can be produced from the land increases at a much slower incremental rate. And he concluded from this that because population growth rapidly outpaces food production, premature death was inevitable once populations exceeded their available food. The result would be a cycle of misery involving poverty, war, disease, and famine. This essay was and continues to be highly influential. And while in the broad lens of history, Malthus was not the first person to introduce this idea, his ideas on the relationship between the growth of human populations and its impact on living standards had the greatest influence up until today. Karl Marx criticized his essay for trying to block political reform by making the assumption that poverty and misery are unavoidable natural laws. Those who adopted his philosophy used it to craft policies that would influence national affairs. We saw these ideas play out in reality in the ways that various states at the time enacted laws. In England, for example, the poverty laws, laws aimed primarily at poor people that made their lives very difficult and much harder than it needed to be, were motivated in large part by the ideas and concept and this idea of inevitable poverty that Malthus first put down on paper. And later, maybe more dramatically, the great potato famine that occurred in Ireland that killed over a million people, that caused another million people to leave the country and decrease the population of Ireland by somewhere around a fifth, was exacerbated dramatically by the failure of states to involve themselves early on and help rectify the problems that led to this famine that could have largely been preventable because it was seen as a natural end result of too many people, not enough land, and a real-world example of Malthus's ideas playing out around them. Later, people would criticize Malthus's theory for failing to predict the rise in agricultural yields from technology. And, you know, maybe this criticism is a bit unfair, as Malthus himself did allow for the possibility that technology could impact food production, but that it would ultimately never outpace population growth and merely delay the inevitable. Where his essay failed the most is in the assumption that human population grows indefinitely in the presence of food without either a natural check, like the catastrophes that he predicted, or a broad human effort to restrain its own growth. 
And in reality, this was a pretty simple model of populations and did not take into account what would become evident in the century after his essay, that population sizes are part of dynamic systems that respond to a variety of complex variables that impact death rate and birth rates in many different ways. For example, for many, industrialization in Europe raised the cost of having children, while also eliminating the need for many couples to increase the size of their families to run farms. But it's more complex than that. As countries became wealthier, family sizes tend to go down, depending on the way wealth impacts people's lives. Access to good healthcare, education, employment, and family planning tend to lower birth rates. At the same time, healthier lifestyles from better medicines and food can lower death rates and greater per capita wealth means children are more affordable. Poverty and income inequality play a significant role in the way populations emerge, and in ways that tend to reinforce themselves. Where there is severe poverty, much of the economic output must go towards short-term necessities like hospitals, schools, and general subsistence. Economic growth is slow as a result, and women who have no access to good economic opportunities resort to childbearing as the best investment. To quote from Limits to Growth, by drawing output away from investment and into consumption, population growth slows capital growth. Poverty, in turn, perpetuates population growth by keeping people in conditions where they have no education, no healthcare, no family planning, no choices, no power, no way to get ahead except to hope their children can bring in income or help with family labor. On the other spectrum, more wealthy countries can afford to divert accumulated capital towards investment multiplying their economic opportunities while lowering the need for more children. This slower growth in population frees up even more capital for investment as opposed to subsistence. Now, to be clear, unlike the argument that Malthus put forward, in no way do the way these systems play out represent what is natural or what must happen, but rather these systems of poverty and wealth, the way they operate is defined by the underlying economic and political structures in which they exist. So the extent to which something like poverty perpetuates itself depends on the way that wealth flows through the current economic structure. And that's something we might expand on a little bit later in this episode. But in short, it's complicated. And people began to realize that it was complicated shortly after Malthus's essay, as industrial nations continued to develop. And his ideas have been hotly debated and passed around intellectual circles ever since. But it was in 1968 that a new book on the matter came onto the scene which would have dramatic influence on policies going forward. Originally titled Population, Resources, and Environment, and retitled by the editor to The Population Bomb, the book by Stanford entomologist Paul Ehrlich and his wife, also a Stanford scientist, reframed this debate. Like Malthus, the Ehrlichs predicted that population growth would result in mass famine and death in the very near future, but that the underlying reasons went beyond a simple food-to-people formula. They saw population growth as an attack on a complex global system in which, quote, too many cars, too many factories, too much detergent, too much pesticide, too little water, too much carbon dioxide, end quote, would destroy civilization. And although the Ehrlich's analysis may have included more complex variables than Malthus's, they nonetheless came to the same conclusion. Population alone was the primary cause of global destruction, mass famine was inevitable within a few years, and reducing population was the only way to stop it. This idea had some unfortunate consequences, as overpopulation became the number one environmental threat to the international community. 
As pointed out by Charles Mann and Smithsonian Magazine, Ehrlich's alarm triggered human rights abuses around the world. In many countries, social workers had salaries that were tied to the number of IUDs they could get women to insert. Millions of people were sterilized in places like Mexico, Bolivia, Peru, Indonesia, Bangladesh, often in unsafe conditions, sometimes illegally. And in the Philippines, birth control pills were tossed out of helicopters throughout the countryside. In addition, India and China's role in sterilization and population control policies is well documented at this point. India's concern over population really took off in 1965, when the prime minister requested food aid from the United States government. U.S. President Lyndon Johnson apparently told an aide, I'm not going to piss away foreign aid in nations where they refuse to deal with their own population problems. And after he met with the prime minister, he sent a memo to Congress assuring them that food aid going to India would be accompanied by Indian policies to curb population growth. In the decades that followed, the Indian prime minister set in motion policies that would require sterilization in exchange for access to water, food, and even medical care, among other policies. Eight million people were sterilized in the year 1975 alone, and these policies were praised by the World Bank. They were in line with American foreign policy at the time and were exactly the type of initiatives that the Ehrlichs recommended in their book. Right, because not only were they recommending curbing population growth as the primary goal to address environmental destruction, but they had a number of recommendations to do so, including various tax schemes to incentivize people to have less children, and even going so far, like in this Indian example, to recommend that countries starve other nations of aid unless they make serious efforts to control their own populations. And at the time, I mean, this was such a common thought that there were textbooks, um, some of which were written by the Ehrlichs or, or based off of the population bomb, that would detail exactly how, like you're saying, to do this. Even things down to like what specific drugs are best distributed, which are most economical, which are most effective. And this was a common thing that you would see in colleges, teaching people how to sterilize the world. This was the, the idea at the time because this book was so influential. And it goes without saying how policies like this and efforts like this opened wide the door for racist policies that targeted specific groups that those in power wanted to lock out of economic progress, as well as even, in some cases, genocide. But you know, David, the idea that population is an important thing to target in terms of policy, it's not new. It's not something that just came onto the scene in the 19th century. No, you're absolutely right, Daniel. These ideas that there's too many people and the world is too small, where there's not enough food or resources on it, are not new. In fact, they're ancient. Ancient philosophers like Plato and Aristotle wrote at length about the perfect population size. They cautioned both that too few people were dangerous. You wouldn't have enough people to defend your town. You wouldn't have enough people to do all the jobs. But even more dangerous would be too many people. Because then you would bring, quote, certain poverty on the citizenry. And poverty is the cause of sedition and evil. And because of that, Aristotle advocated for the use of things like abortion and just throwing away babies off cliffs or leaving them outside to die from exposure. This is not a new policy. Well, David, speaking of ancient Greece, Spartan life was propped up largely by helots, which were populations of slaves that significantly outnumbered Spartan citizens. And according to Plutarch, the elected leaders of Sparta enacted policies that permitted each Spartan citizen to kill a helot every year as a way to further subjugate this exploited people and prevent their populations from overpowering Spartans. 
And in the East, Confucius cautioned that, quote, excessive growth may reduce output per worker, repress levels of living for the masses, and engender strife. Confucius also observed that, quote, mortality increases when food supply is insufficient, that premature marriage makes for high infantile mortality rates, and that war checks population growth. So says Confucius. The connection between war and population is obviously well observed. Tertullian, an early Christian Carthaginian author, also wrote on how famine and war can be used to prevent overpopulation. He wrote, quote, The strongest witness is the vast population of the earth to which we are a burden, and she scarcely can provide for our needs. As our demands grow greater, our complaints against nature's inadequacy are heard by all. The scourges of pestilence, famine, wars, and earthquakes have come to be regarded as a blessing to overcrowded nations since they serve to prune away the luxuriant growth of the human race. So as you can see, Daniel, these ideas of overpopulation and population control are nothing new. And apparently very much of these ideas accompany very uh, unfavorable policies of genocide, of infanticide, of killing slaves. It makes sense to me that even so much as suggesting the phrase population control or bringing it up causes a huge resistance and emotional reaction among people. Yeah, absolutely. There are thousands of years of people abusing population control for these horrible end results. And in the process, probably at this point, millions and millions of people dying from these justifications. And it's very clear. There's no doubt that the types of genocidal policies that this millennia-old debate has spawned are pretty bad, pretty horrific. But much of the underlying fears that have motivated these awful conclusions are based in something real. But before we discuss why the various policies in the past have done nothing to address the roots of environmental destruction that is threatening our world, it's important to examine the way systems thinking applied to ecology gives us the best method of understanding our own impact on this earth. And in the context of this topic, we can think of our human relationship with the earth in very simple terms. In a finite world, the expansion of humans' physical presence, our total ecological footprint, puts stress on the earth systems that support our existence. So what are some of these physical impacts that we have on the earth? Well, I mean, writing them all down, measuring what all of them are is something that's basically impossible and well outside the scope of this show. But there are some that are very obvious and very huge. And maybe most obvious for anybody watching is, of course, population size. But also, there are many other topics here that are affecting the Earth that we're responsible for. Pollution or the waste from our activities, our mountains of landfill and plastic that finds its way everywhere, our industrial output. That means things like CO2, box, air pollution, the things we emit out onto this Earth. The very commodities that we produce, the goods that we make that circulate the world on ships and trucks. Resource depletion, the mines, the chopping down of lumber the fishing of oceans. And of course, the big topic, the one that people have concerned themselves with for the longest time, is food production and the eventual exhaustion of the fertile land of Earth to feed an ever-growing number of hungry human mouths. And so as these various impacts expand, as their activity intensifies, they very obviously put stress on the Earth's limited ability to absorb their impact. Then what then is the obvious question? What are these limits? Well, I mean, the Earth is limited in its ability to provide finite resources. 
It's limited in its ability to generate renewable resources like fish, wood, and fresh water. It's limited in its ability to absorb our pollution. So what happens when we expand beyond these limits? Well, depending on the size of the reserves within these systems, it means that we overshoot the Earth's ability to sustain whatever it is we are doing. And we can either scale back in time to avoid a collapse of that activity, or the Earth system simply gives out and forces a collapse. Now, for long-time listeners, this is nothing new. It's a central underlying theme in just about all the topics we cover. And, I mean, one day we'll do an episode devoted entirely to the state of the modern world in relation to these limits. But for the purpose of this episode, we're going to remain mostly conceptual. The idea, David, that we as a sprawling global civilization could ever collapse is an idea that is really hard for people to swallow. Besides the fact that it is emotionally uncomfortable, there's not a lot of historical precedent outside the collapse of ancient empires like the Romans, which we as a species had no problem adjusting to and moving on and continuing to prosper. In fact, much of the species has been unaffected by localized collapses like that and in many cases flourished as a result. At the same time, many influential people like Thomas Malthus and the Ehrlichs have sounded alarm bells that civilization is on the brink of disaster and, well, here we are. So while many people are willing to accept, yes, I see that melting sea ice is a problem, they are likely to shrug it off with, well, we'll figure something out, just like we always have. So to understand maybe why this time it's different, there are a few components of the way systems work that will help us wrap our mind around this and illustrate how it's even possible that our daily activities can threaten our future as a species. David, let me do this one. Okay, Daniel, go ahead. I was thinking about this. I was trying to wrap my brain around how to explain what a system is, right? And ultimately, what a system is in its most basic form, it has four general components. Okay. It has a reserve. It has an input and output and rates of change for both these inputs and outputs. The flows, if you will. This, this is a lot of words, Daniel. This is hard to conceptualize. Can you give me like a visual picture here? Right. So I'll give you an illustration, okay? Think of a bathtub. Okay. I'm way ahead of you. You probably have one in your residence. Actually, I only have a shower, but I'll pretend it's both. That's uh, that's not going to work. All right. Just, can you just imagine that you have a bathtub? Okay. I'm a leap of faith for you. The reserve is the amount of water in the tub. The input is the water that comes through the spout and into the tub. Okay. The output is the drain, and both of these flows occur over time. And that rate can be adjusted. You can turn the spout on higher, faster, slower. You can plug the drain. You can let it all out. Mm -hmm. And where does my bubble bath work into this? Well, that would probably be a good analogy, David, for pollution. And that's not going to work for this illustration. So <laughs> okay. just bear with me, okay? I, I don't bathe without bubbles, so, but... Equilibrium of this system occurs when the flow of water going into the tub equals the flow going out. Okay. And in this state, the amount in the tub remains constant. So it's the same amount is coming in, the same amount is going out, and so the water level doesn't change. It's a perfect balance. Perfect balance. And that's a basic system, and it's easy to understand. But to understand the dangers inherent in not understanding these systems... What are you going to do to my bath? <laughs> Let's take this illustration up a notch with a Malthusian function. Okay. So imagine that this tub of water 
is your source of drinking water. And you depend on it for survival. Drinking that dirty bath water. Yeah, you still have your shower for bathing, but this tub is exclusively for drinking. (laughs) Just like my cat. You start with a reserve of 500 units of water. Water flows into the tub at one unit per day. And for your survival, you drink one unit per day. Okay. Equilibrium. Perfect. Your drinking is also the only output because you plug the drain. Equilibrium. I was thinking ahead. I'm drinking my unit and I'm feeling good. David, you could continue this forever and the reserve will never decrease. But you know what? You decide on day two to invite another person into your home. So now there are two people, each drinking one unit of water per day, which is more than the inflow of water. But after that second day, there are still 499 units of water left in the tub. Plenty of drinking water left. Yeah, I mean, a a bath is more fun with two people. And uh, I still got 499 units of water left. So that's a a lot of days of double bathing, which sounds pretty good to me. Remember, David, you're not getting in this tub. You're just drinking it. It's my water. It's my unit. I can do what I want with it. All right. Don't make us pass some unit loss. Okay. So you're feeling good. If you and your new friend each invite another person to your home the next day, you're up to four people and there are still 496 units left in the tub at the end of the day. All right. Mm -hmm. Now you are really feeling good. Let's say this growth continues. You each keep inviting people every single day, growing in this very geometric way. A lot of friends. By day nine, because your water drinking pyramid scheme is paying off, there are 256 people in your home drinking water. 256 of my closest friends. And this is no problem because your reserves are still at around 50%. Now, David, this is the most important moment in this example. I need you to pay attention, David, because while there is still 50% left in your reserves, it all gets depleted in the very last moment, day 10. And once that reserve is gone, those 500 and something people, their demand for water, which is now just one unit per day, that demand exceeds available supply by over 51,000%. Damn. Of course, this is a silly example where the behavioral flaw is glaringly obvious. You wouldn't just drink up your total supply of water. I have too many friends. You're caring, you're generous, you're giving of all your water. And so as silly as this is, there are two very important concepts that make it difficult to see these types of things play out all around us in the real world. And those concepts are geometric growth, which is something that Malthus was a big proponent of, and delays. The geometric growth in water drinkers in this example means that the largest effects do not occur until the very last moment, which is why anyone living out this illustration could not have predicted this inevitable collapse if the only data they had was historical. And the delay in the people's ability to change course is what facilitates that final collapse. Delays occur because it can take time to measure the change of a complex system. Imagine, David, that instead of just being out in the open, this tub was in the wall. Mm. You have no idea what the reserve levels are. You could measure it, but it would require investing in a device and then taking measurements over a five-day period. Well, it's not hard to imagine it could take a couple days to acquire this device. Then it would take those five days to realize that consumption patterns were unsustainable at which point you have a ton of people in your house, and then there would be a delay in action caused by having to convince everyone that there was a problem and that something should actually be done. Now, I'll take you one step further, David. Imagine that this tub is not an isolated system, but is in fact interconnected 
with 10 other dynamic systems, all impacting each other in different ways and at different rates. Now that gets us closer to the real world. Just like my bubble bath pollution. Yes, David, just like your bubble bath solution. But enough about baths, Daniel. I mean, in the real world, every ecological system that sustains life on Earth operates as complex, interconnected systems. I mean, this is just like the tub example, but so much more difficult to understand. We started looking at this with how connected ecosystems are in our extinction episode, Irreplaceable. Some reserves are massive and receive inputs from tens of thousands of sources all at different rates, and measuring changes can be mind-bogglingly difficult. But just like the tub example, delays in tracking and adjusting to those changes, coupled with that geometric growth and our impact, lead to total collapse of these systems' ability to operate within a margin that's suitable for human life. David, you're right. These systems are everywhere. And when we think about the reserves within a system, it's easy to imagine an oil field where there's a finite pool of oil or, or something like a mine where you know once the rock runs out, the mine is dead. But a reserve can be more abstract, like the ability for lakes and rivers to absorb pollution. That ability represents a reserve that can be lost over time or gained over time. The ability for topsoil to actually provide crops to be arable. This is a subject that we've talked about several times. Episode 16, David, and also episode 26. This is a very important topic and something the UN has identified as having, at this point, maybe only decades left because of our unsustainable practices with arable land. But dirt also holds lots of other things. It sequesters CO2. It absorbs heat. And we're reaching the limits of this natural system to hold those, meaning that we might see inputs in other areas rise very rapidly. Another one which we only briefly touch in the extinction episode are the ecosystems that keep dangerous pathogens in check, like various parasites, viruses, bacteria that could be harmful to human health but are kept in check by a vibrant biodiversity. Well, as we lose that biodiversity, we lose the Earth's reserve ability to keep those pathogens in a healthy balance. You know, I think we also touch on that concept in our irresistible episode about antimicrobial resistance, especially in zoonotic transmission. So these are, like I said, these are topics that we keep on harping on because they are all so interconnected and all building into these systems, which we need to understand as a whole in order to really wrap our mind around these impending cliffs. I mean, these systems interact with our economies in ways which are hard to understand. They're so varied. There's so many inputs, outputs, effects, different variables along the way that it's really difficult to chart it all, to measure it and wrap our mind around it. I mean, look at this example. So industrial output affects ecological health through things like pollution, but pollution impacts population health. And then that population health turns around and impacts the demand for investment in health services and social welfare. These turn around and impact the flows of investments going into industrial reserves, and that changes impacts in food production. I mean, how would our ability to maintain industry be affected if all of a sudden we experience a collapse in these topsoil reserves required to grow our food? How would our ability to maintain health populations be affected if we experience a collapse in pollution-absorbing reserves? We mentioned in our plastics episode how China's ban on foreign waste imports resulted in an almost overnight overflow of trash in the UK. In an interconnected global world, collapse in local systems can have dramatic cascading effects worldwide. According to the World Wildlife Foundation Living Planet Report of 2016, quote, human activities and accompanying resource uses have grown so dramatically, especially since the mid-20th century, that the environmental conditions that fostered our development and growth are beginning to deteriorate. 
end quote. And these deteriorations in environmental systems, which become so apparent as our activities overshoot the Earth's ability to sustain our activities, these ideas and these fears are what have generated so much concern over population. And as we mentioned, these fears have led to a number of startling policies, policies of sterilization, of genocide, of racial discrimination, and some of the most inhumane categories of crimes not just in the distant past, but very, very recently. You know, Daniel, when I started looking into some of these crimes, and I think that's the word I'm going to use because I really feel like they are, even though a lot of these were illegal initiatives by states, some of which still exist. And that was the most surprising part for me, that as like disgusting as some of these programs were, a lot of times we look at these and it's like, oh, that's the past. We didn't know any better. You know, like 1930s, 1920s America. Yeah, of course we were sterilizing people. That was a crazy time. We just had no idea, right? You know, that was like, oh, you're, you're feeling bad? You're, you got a cough? Here, smoke some cigarettes. Uh, here's a little radiation on your feet. You know, it'll take care of you. Like, that was just the time. You go to the shoe store, they're like, let me x-ray your feet without any lead protection. You know, it was a simpler time. <laughs> right, to find the perfect size boot. Makes sense. Prescribed heroin, whatever. You know, different time. And ideally, we've learned since then. We're not making the same horrible mistakes, lobotomizing people, sterilizing them for no reason. Or, you know, at least that's what I thought. And I was shocked to find that even today, in Europe, there are 10 European member nations that require sterilization in transgender individuals before they're allowed to legally change their sex registration with the government, as of the last census of these policies. Sterilization programs are going on right now in Bangladesh, an attempt to sterilize refugee camps where nearly a million people are trying to survive. At least 250 people undergo government sterilization programs each month and are paid around $24 for the process. And many of these people being sterilized in Bangladesh are refugee Rohingya, a threatened Muslim refugee group fleeing government persecution in Myanmar. In fact, the UN it just charged several Myanmar generals with genocide because of this, these actions occurring right now. And they are being sterilized actively by the Bangladeshi state. In addition, in Myanmar itself, they've introduced new laws requiring a spacing between birthing children, three years I think it is right now, and this is targeted primarily to punish Rohingya populations that don't have access to some of the family planning materials that the majority populations do. In Japan, the National Eugenic Law was introduced in 1940, eventually replaced by the Eugenic Protection Law in 1948, which allowed sterilization of people with certain genetic predispositions, including things like colorblindness and the very general uh, predisposition to commit crime. Since 1940 up until 1995, around 800,000 people have been surgically sterilized. In the late 2000s, Israel was secretly injecting Ethiopian Jewish immigrants with a long-acting contraceptive called Depo-Provera that prevented these women from being able to have children. Nobody knew about this for years until the media reported on it and it was eventually admitted and apologized for, and Israel said that it was never intended to be the case, but this policy continued for years at the time until it was eventually found out. The United States Agency for International Development put $36 million towards a program in Peru that took place in 1995 and which forcibly sterilized indigenous people. In South Africa, there have been multiple reports of HIV-positive women 
being sterilized without their informed consent, and sometimes even without their knowledge. In Russia, many doctors can order sterilization without patient consent. And as we mentioned earlier, India used sterilization as a carrot to attract poor individuals who desired land, housing, money, or loans, and rewarded them with those products in exchange for their own sterilization. But modern eugenics really took off first in the United States. And perhaps this is where modern eugenics came from. Beginning in about 1890, the United States was the first nation to really undertake compulsory sterilization for the purpose of improving the overall genetic fitness of the population, or in another word, eugenics. Many of these sterilizations were rooted in economic arguments and with the presiding medical prejudices concerning this area of that time. California was the nation's leader in sterilization and sterilized more than any other state by an enormous margin. In fact, the state alone counted for a third of all the sterilizations that occurred within the United States. This program was so prolific and successful that it was said to be an inspiration to Adolf Hitler. And key importance in proving that large compulsory sterilization was a program that was feasible and could be put into practice. And although some of the institutions from this earlier time have shut down, like the Oregon Board of Eugenics, later renamed the Board of Social Protection, shut down just a few decades ago in 1983, the practice of sterilization in the United States continues to this day. Between 2006 and 2010, Close to 150 female prisoners in California were sterilized, apparently as part of a volunteer program, but later it was found out these prisoners did not give consent. In 2014, a man in Virginia who was on probation was given a plea deal if he accepted a vasectomy. And in fact, plea deals that require forced sterilization are common practice in U.S. courtrooms. Just this year, David, in February, a 34-year-old woman was sentenced to a year in prison with three years supervised release and a $15,000 fine for using a counterfeit check at Walmart. She was facing a maximum 10 years in prison, but the judge agreed to reduce the sentence if she agreed to medical sterilization. She did. I know we keep saying that we're going to do a show on plea deals, but I mean, I really just have to interrupt here and just say how gross this is. I mean, I understand that these judges think that they're acting out of the person's best interest, like you should not have any more kids. Maybe that's true. I mean, there's definitely people that shouldn't have kids that don't deserve kids. But using a coercive method, like a plea deal, saying that if you don't allow us to sterilize you, you will go to prison, seems to me like a really fucked up way to use these systems. I mean, I was disgusted when I read these examples and, and how common it apparently is. Like I said, don't get me started on plea deals. This is its own episode, and we'll get to it eventually. But just really, it's gross. This is gross. Well, David, you know, as gross as forced sterilization is, there is a more subtle population control going on in the United States, just as part of how our public and legal institutions have prejudged poor women, especially women of color, to be inadequate mothers. I mean, we see this portrayed in media very much, you know, the common trope of the black woman who can't take care of her family, who's not a good mother. These types of stereotypes are not based in any reality, but are things that we've accepted in society as a way to prejudge a person's ability to take care of their family. And this is embedded in the way our public assistance programs treat them. If you are a poor mother in the United States 
and you want public assistance, some kind of welfare, some kind of help, you often have to give up your own privacy. The government is going to monitor your sexual life, ask you questions about your future family plans, put pressure on you to conform to a certain family style. And if they do not accept public assistance, but they fall into a certain cohort in society, they open themselves up to ongoing monitoring and surveillance by Child Protective Services. The way we intervene in these women's lives is totally foreign to someone who is part of a middle class or obviously a more upper middle class or even wealthy cohort in society. If a poor woman is pregnant and she wants public health insurance, often they have to give up more of their privacy. More of their sexual life is going to be scrutinized. Their dating relationships, all their medical information, their finances. Some states will actually not give public assistance to women who have more than a certain number of children. And so we see while this is not a direct sterilization, it is a very clear control of a population that we have already deemed unworthy of equal participation in society. Unworthy and unwanted. But in all this discussion of the population control measures that are being put into place by states around the world, whether it's control of things like welfare, whether it's groups like the IMF and the World Bank limiting resources based on family planning concessions, or whether it's direct sterilization oftentimes of these specifically unwanted groups, whether they be socioeconomic or ethnic, maybe we should stop for a second and reflect on whether overpopulation and the control of our population globally is even asking the right question to begin with. You mean if it's the right question in terms of the threats to our world? Well, I'm not saying that population doesn't play into these systems that we talk about. I mean, if you have 7 million people, you have 7 billion mouths to feed. That's math. Of course, population is a part of this equation. But I want to suggest that maybe it's not the largest part, and not by a long shot. Are you telling me, David, that if we line up some of the great philosophers of our time and of ancient time, Confucius, Plato, Aristotle, those uh, Spartan leaders, well, maybe we won't include those, but um, Thomas Malthus and those Stanford biologists, the Ehrlichs, are you telling me that they in some way got it wrong? Well, I, I just think that they're missing the point. Like I said, I mean, population is absolutely part of this equation. We cannot deny that fact. But fact of the matter is, is that population is only a part of this. And the question isn't, you know, we have seven and a half billion mouths to feed. Are we going to do that? But to answer that question, we also need to look at how much food are those 7.5 billion people going to eat? And when we start looking at consumption, how much resources a single individual emits, and how we expand that across the world's population, we very quickly reveal that the problem isn't overpopulation. The problem is overconsumption in certain, typically very small portions of our global population. Uh, okay, so... It's not that we as a global population are having too many kids. It's that some groups are just having a bigger impact. And I'm guessing that's going to be found in, well, let's see, last time I checked, many of the wealthiest countries in the world actually have stable or declining populations. So I'm guessing the biggest impact is going to be coming from the developing countries, places in Africa, Latin America, <laughs> India, places where population is out of control. 
Well, reading the Ehrlich's books, you would think that's the case. And, and this is something that they've continued to discuss even through to modern day, decades after they first published The Population Bomb. And they continue to claim that population reductions in places around the world, that declining population you mentioned in Europe, in Japan, in the so-called civilized and developed world, is a huge achievement. It's something that's saving the world from standing on the edge of this cliff built by the geometric functions of Thomas Malthus 200 years before. But this doesn't match up with the data. Not at all. Not even remotely. Where is the consumption happening? Where are all those resources being spent, burned up, consumed? Well, it's in those countries that are developed. Those countries with those declining populations. And those countries where populations are exploding? Yeah, I mean, the consumption is going up, pollution is going up, CO2 emitted is going up, but nowhere near the rate that it goes up in the developed world, in places where population is supposedly under control, where family planning is part of the system, and, and, and where population growth has gotten so low that many governments are now introducing pro-natalist policies, trying to encourage more population growth. In 2012, the amount of resources and ecological services that we as humans consumed required 1.6 Earths in order to remain sustainable. And today that would probably be a little bit larger. And when you start to look at consumption patterns around the world, industrial outputs, pollution, demands for energy, food production, it becomes very clear that some of our biggest impacts have very little to do with the underlying growth in population. And one early critic of The Population Bomb, that book by the Ehrlichs, pointed out that while the Ehrlichs look to population growth as the sole problem of environmental destruction and our future, pollution in the 70s was outpacing population growth 7 to 1. Demands for power, 8 to 1. And we see similar trends today, in fact, as agricultural yields outpace current worldwide population trends. Per capita food production increased between 1961 and 2011 at a rate of 0.64% per year. And that's overpopulation growth. That means that we were producing food faster than we were reproducing. Well, let's turn this into some numbers just for a moment, because I think this really illustrates for me in a very graphic visual way just how dramatic the disparity between the consumption of the wealthiest of the world and the poorest are, and why the conceptions of overpopulation as the greatest threat to our world is so wildly off. It's not about population, it's about consumption. So, so look at this. And for simplicity's sake, we're going to look at carbon dioxide emissions. It's a really easy thing to chart. You can look at it uh, by per capita emissions. You can break it up into individuals, the top 1% wealthiest, the top 0.1%, the bottom 10%, whatever. It's very easy to divide up and look at, um, much more so than a lot of other pollutants or inputs or variables that we talked about that are so hard to graph and chart. So for the sake of this example, we're looking at global carbon dioxide emissions annually. And we're looking at per capita nations. We're looking at it also as just a basis along the world. So we take our total global annual carbon dioxide emitted, and we can see who emitted what. How much did the poorest 10% of the world emit versus how much did the richest 1% emit? Should I guess, David? Well, let me ask you the question. Okay. Right now, we're living unsustainably. There's no doubt about that. 1.6 Earths, baby. Maybe we can figure it out. <laughs> exactly. I mean, so we have a population of 7.6 billion people, give or take. We are absolutely on a collision course to unsustainable collapse. No doubt about it. The Paris Agreement is trying to get us down to specific things in order to even just limit our CO2 impact at this point and, and not even eliminate it completely. I don't want to get into that at the moment, but life is unsustainable. We can agree on that. 
So if we take the impact of the bottom 10%, Daniel, and we expand this up to a global population, so we eliminate the top 90%, and we make everybody emit as much CO2 as this bottom 10%, how many people do you think would have to be on this earth to emit the same amount of carbon dioxide? Do you want to take a guess? All else being equal, David, you know, assuming we don't have to build like massive bunkers in the sky to house all these people. Just if if we could magically snap our fingers and make this happen. All right, I'm going to go big here. So 70 billion people, David. You're close, but try double that. Almost 140 billion people on Earth, so 133 billion actually, would emit the same amount of carbon dioxide as we do right now if all those 133 billion people were living the same way as the poorest 10% of people on Earth do. Does that sound like an overpopulation problem? But let's try this on the flip side, Daniel, if you're not convinced yet. So let's instead take the richest 10% of people on Earth instead, okay? All right. These are the billionaire, the rich of the rich. We're flying from our... No, no, no. Flying it's from not... our Singapore towers to our <laughs> towers in Dubai where we never touch land. We're always in the air. I order my filet mignon. They cut the beef in Brazil. They fly it to London where they cook it. Daniel's never flown anything beyond like uh, stowaway class. No, no, no. I wish. That would be that would be awesome. I mean, it's not billionaires like that. No seatbelts, baby. The richest 10% is basically everybody on earth who lives in a developed nation. This is a lot of people. It's 760 million people. Oh, okay. But these 760 million people consume more than half of the world's resources by themselves. So that means just barely over 1.5 billion people would consume the same amount of resources as our 7.6 billion do right now. If we all lived like the richest 10% of people on earth, which if you're listening to this show is almost certainly you. Does this sound like an overpopulation problem or an overconsumption problem? Let me get this straight. If everyone on earth lived with the same impact that the top 10% population does, then a sustainable level would be 1.6 billion people on earth not even a sustainable level the same level of unsustainable living oh okay so we're still we're still we're still unsustainable we're still using 1.6 earth we're just yeah we're just all living like a developed nation lifestyle but the earth can only support globally if everyone lived like that 1.5 billion people all right but maybe let's take it even farther than that now i'm a billionaire um i got my burrowing plane. I'm actually underwater. I'm going to Atlantis. I'm buying my beef. This time they chopped the beef down in... Why Why are you buying beef in Atlantis? Because I'm a billionaire, David. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and so here the numbers start getting a little bit iffy because it's harder to nail these down exactly. But, but the papers I've seen, this is pretty accurate. And I'm going to be a little bit generous with this estimate too. So I'm going to overestimate it in favor of of making it less dramatic than it is. But so let's look at the global 0.1%, the richest of the rich. These are not even your billionaires, Daniel. These are the modest millionaires of the world all the way up to the Sheik's CEOs, the Bill Gates, the Elon Musk's of the world. This is globally 7.6 million people, the 7.6 richest people on earth. If the entire world's population was made up of these people and they all polluted the same as they do now, The same levels of Earth's unsustainable emissions that we have right now will be made up by just around 33 million people. That is the carrying capacity of Earth if we all pollute as much as the richest 0.1% of people on Earth. Just 33 million people. Does that sound like an overpopulation problem or an overconsumption problem? Well, David, you just shattered the billionaire dream for me. Now I realize not only is impossible me and everyone else to achieve that billionaire status, 
because of the probability associated with reaching that level. But now I know that if we all lived that way, well, it would destroy the earth in a heartbeat. So thank you for that. But you know, looking at carbon dioxide emissions is one thing, but another way to look at it is income. And data from the United Nations Development Program reveal that in 1960, the per capita income of the wealthiest 20% of the global population was 30 times higher than the poorest 20%. And by 1995, that ratio had increased from 30 to 1 to 82 to 1. So we see as time goes on, that rich 1% gets richer and richer and the poor get poorer, as we would expect. And, and to really highlight how overconsumption is a problem, David, or not just overconsumption, meaning we buy too many shoes, but overconsumption, meaning that the way we live our life is propped up by systems that abuse the environment in unsustainable ways. A good illustration of that, bringing it back to Malthus and his fixation on food, we can look at food production to see some startling trends. Right now, about half the entire global population is sustained by industrial agriculture that exists because of unsustainable nitrogen fertilizers. These are things that cannot continue, but yet half the population of the world gets its food through this process. 1% of all farms are large industrial-scale operations, but these cover 65% of agricultural land employing those unsustainable industrial practices. And for the 5.6 billion consumers worldwide who purchase their food from some source tied to the international markets, 45% of the food bought takes place in large supermarkets, suggesting that this food system is being propped up by cheap fossil fuels, allowing crops that are now commodities to be shipped cheaply worldwide, something again that cannot be sustained. And your numbers, David, highlight so clearly how we don't have a population problem. We have a resource use and, and wealth distribution and consumption problem in such a way that targeting population decline cannot be the true solution to this. Because in this world, in a profit-seeking consumer economy, as we see, consumption is greatest in wealthy countries where, if anything, population already is in decline. And why is this? It may be true that expanding the consumer base through population growth does benefit some sectors of the economy who want to sell more toothbrushes and shoes, but population growth is not necessary to grow consumer economies. If population declines, as long as we're continuing to go forward business as usual under the current economic paradigm, advertisers and companies can adapt by persuading people to consume more, waste more. For us in richer countries, that might mean buying more plane tickets or eating more lavish meals or owning more gadgets in our homes or simply owning more homes altogether. And for poorer countries, there's a lot of potential to grow consumption by emulating these wealthier lifestyles. There is no end to the amount of consumption that we can squeeze out of people as long as we're still driving forward in this indefinite physical growth paradigm, regardless of what population does. And so the only way that we can address some of the systemic issues that we've been talking about on this show and various topics is to get at the heart of the fundamental economic structure, the structure that allows wealth to accumulate in such dramatic proportions where 1% of the global population can outnumber in terms of consumption by such a huge margin everybody else. Speaking of income inequality, I want to come back to that bathtub illustration, David, and take it one more step. Okay, are you ready? Can you do this one more time? 
Uh, okay, I'm ready. Okay. So in the first bathtub illustration, mm-hmm. you invited your friends, your closest friends to your home to partake in your water. But let's say, David, in this imaginary world, you have no friends. It is an imaginary world. It's hard to imagine, but if you really stretch your mind, I think you can do it. Now, you have this water resource. You have this tub of water, but there's one problem. You're not making any money off of it. That is a problem. So you've come up with a solution, and that is you very maliciously, you go out into the world and you poison everyone else's water source to create a little bit of scarcity for your own. And then at the door, you charge people to enter. Right, And this is necessarily going to be wealthy people. You really want to target those whales out there, David, with a lot of money. So it's $10 to get into the door. I'm liking this business plan a lot, Daniel. It's giving me some ideas. Yes. Well, stick around to the end because you might not like the conclusion. But for the moment, you're making money. People are coming to your door. They're coming into your house and they get access to this exclusive resource. And you look out the window and you notice that all around you, the world is suffering, but you in your home, you get to laugh and laugh because you are making so much money. And you and your friends now, they are your new friends. You get to laugh. That's right. Making money, making friends. You all are getting rich. You all are reaping the benefits that come at the direct expense of everyone else. But then we know how the illustration ends. The reserve runs out, demand outpaces supply. And now what do you do, David? You go out into the world looking for a little bit of water to quench your thirst, but you find that all that is left is ruin. And again, this bathtub example, sure, it's silly, but this is exactly how our economy functions. And it's one of the fundamental characteristics of our economy that must be restructured, not simply adjusted, but completely restructured if we have any hope of getting through these problems. And maybe it seems like a hot take to say that our economy has functioned in this way. But I mean, going back to food, another example of this, consider that right now European demand for meat consumption is supplied by outsourcing soy production to South America, which takes up 46 million hectares or land mass equivalent to 90% of all Germany's agricultural land. And soy is one of those industrial agriculture practices which destroys rainforests which destroys the topsoil over time. And that destruction impacts all of us. We simply don't see it, but these global systems catch up to us. As long as we live in a world that says the only people who deserve to eat are those that earn it through wages or return on investment, then we will continue to live in a world that advances the rich at the expense of the poor, fostering competition for scarce resources and the destruction of the environment. Exclusion and accumulation are fundamentally inconsistent with economic systems operating within sustainable boundaries. So, I mean, these are dire straits. And in many ways, actually, a world where we're consuming too much seems harder to fix than a world where there's just too many people, period. It's easy to tell somebody you can't have any more kids. It's easy to sterilize someone. It's much harder to come to somebody and say, you need to live less. You need to eat less. You need to eat more sustainably. Change your diet. Change how you live. Change the environment you live in. Those are tall orders. Nobody wants a lower standard of living. But if we want a sustainable earth, that's what we might be facing. There's a word for this. A word for an economy that is built around converting to sustainability instead of one based solely on constantly exploiting new resources. And that word is degrowth. You know, David, we talk a lot on this show about the failures of an idea that's embedded in our society, that indefinite economic growth is necessary and good. It's an idea that gives life to much of the economy, and and we harp on it 
every now and then. But growth is simply something that is measured. And this idea of indefinite growth is only dangerous today because of what we are measuring. And sometimes, Daniel, what we aren't measuring. Exactly. There are many things that we could measure to track human progress, but we have chosen to measure it in sales of products. Not even a specific product, but just any product. We measure the success of whole countries based on how many shoes, how many loans, or how many rocks they sell. GDP is the measure of success by which we judge other groups of people. And what is comprised of GDP? The amount of things that people buy, the money we invest, the amount of things countries buy from us, money spent by the government. Does any of this tell us something meaningful about our relationship to each other and the earth that ultimately makes life possible? And it's not enough to simply scale back or ask one company to stop destroying the earth because both options will lead to suffering as our economies suffer. Economic recessions and depressions are painful, which is why the only viable solution must mean a departure from current economic models. Profit-seeking does not preserve the environment, period. If we want to live on this earth, we have to start fundamentally from an ecological understanding of the earth. We must look at the ground beneath our feet and ask what level of taking and polluting that ground can we sustain. Once we establish those levels, we must commit to maintaining them. These limits must be completely outside the realms of economic incentive. They simply must comprise the bounds of the new structure. Imagine a world in which it is simply a given that every human has a basic right to food, shelter, to life, and that no individual has a right to more than their fair share, a share that is proportional to what that environmental limit is. If this seems crazy or ridiculous, it's only because we've become normalized to living in an already crazy world. We can't survive at our current rates of extraction and output, but that fact has been hidden out of sight because the people who profit the most literally do not care. Our billionaires and world leaders were given a choice. Accept untold riches today at the expense of mass suffering in the future, or don't accept it and watch as your peers outcompete and outachieve you. Many people made this choice. Did they make the evil choice? Perhaps. But exclusively blaming these individuals ultimately won't help us because it is a fundamental economic structure underneath them that has allowed them to make that choice in the first place. A world in which we all establish food as a basic right and a right that must be kept within environmental boundaries precludes the option for a person to profit from the sales of pesticides, patented seeds, industrial-scale harvesters, and nitrogen fertilizer. Because those things would have no demand in society. They would have no reason for existing. So as we insinuated, maybe it's time to imagine a new economy. One based not on measuring things like GDP, per capita growth, how many widgets we produce, but one that's focused on degrowth, or if we want to rephrase that word, because we've become so concerned with this constant growth word that it's wormed its way into our mind and controls how we see the world, that instead we twist our focus of what growth is, not from these economic imperatives that we have right now of ever higher GDPs and stock prices, but instead a more sustainable future of turning to measure our sustainability index. And this, of course, means a lower standard of living for many of us in developed nations. If you're curious what that looks like, a recent report in 2016 found that there are about two nations that are wholly sustainable. 
that is their imports, their exports, their impact on their environment. And what those two countries look like, it's not wealthy. It's Sri Lanka and it's Cuba. They're not well off by any means, at least compared to developed nations, but they don't lack. There's enough food, there's enough education, there's enough health care. And though there are poor and some are wealthier than others, inequality is much lower than there are in many developed and developing nations. This is the model of a sustainable future. It's one where we don't have excess. We just have enough. And instead, we need to fill that hole left in our hearts by the things that we bought, by the things we collected and consumed, instead with each other, with community relations, with our neighbors, with family, with hobbies and pursuits that we can pursue because we have the free time to, because our days aren't dominated by the endless quest for more, more widgets, more monies, more promotions, driving these stock numbers higher and higher, and instead measuring our development in satisfaction, our development in sustainability, our measure of animals returning to places where they hadn't lived for generations because we drove them out in the quest for more. This is a world where degrowth is the rule, where regrowth is the future, where growth of useless economic measures is done and buried, and instead we grow together. That is the only way forward that we can weather the storms that are coming because overconsumption is real. It's here right now. And population is growing. It's going to exacerbate this problem even more, as well as things like migration, unsustainable production, more resource extraction, greater numbers of products constructed and consumed around the world. We're doing the opposite of what we need to survive as a species and as a civilization. And if we don't act right now, then our children and our grandchildren will pay the cost. But you know what is interesting, David, as we come to the close of this episode? Perhaps Malthus and the Ehrlichs weren't right in terms of what we need, but they might ultimately have the last laugh. That's right, Daniel. Researchers published a paper in 2017 that found a link between one of the most common herbicides in the agricultural industry and birth defects. Birth defects go up when farmers spray nearby fields of the herbicide atrazine, which then makes it into the drinking water supply. As terrible as this is, it may not be that surprising that when pregnant women drink water with chemical herbicides, the fetus can be affected. But what alarmed the researchers the most is the fact that this endocrine-disrupting chemical causes permanent epigenetic changes to DNA, meaning exposure to the chemical can leave imprints on your DNA that is then passed down and inherited. And our understanding of epigenetics is still very new and constantly evolving. But basically, it's a phenomenon by which environmental triggers cause DNA to express themselves in different ways. And for all the testing we've done on medicines, drugs, and chemicals we administer, there have been no studies to measure multi-generational impacts of certain drugs, and especially not chemicals like atrazine that were spraying all over the place. The same researchers also found that 93% of pregnant women in Indiana have levels of glyphosate, the main ingredient in Monsanto's Roundup, in their urine which correlates to shorter pregnancies and likely epigenetic effects similar to atrazine. Now, what does this mean, David? Well, to help understand, the scientists ran a study on rats in which they exposed pregnant rodents to atrazine. And as expected, their babies had health defects. What was unexpected, though, was the fact that subsequent generations of rats not exposed to any chemicals developed worse and worse health defects to the point of infertility. Because these DNA changes were being passed down and magnified at each generation. This point is crazy. If the same effects occur in humans, 
It means that some of the pollutants, toxins, and other products of industrial activity are having impacts on our health, but the full consequences of these impacts won't even be noticed until two generations later. Yeah, remember that bathtub analogy, David? And how an important concept that leads us to collapse is the delay before adjustments can be made to systemic changes. Well, here's a delay for you. You and everyone else on the planet suddenly realizes that everyone is infertile, all because of chemicals dumped on the ground by your grandparents' generation. At that point, it's way too late to make a correction. Well, at least at that point, the overpopulation debate can finally be buried. If you want to learn more about any of the topics we discussed today, read a full transcript of this episode. You can do all of that and much more on our website at ashesashes.org. A lot of time and research goes into making these episodes possible, and we will never use advertising to support this show. So if you like it and would like us to keep going, you, our listener, can support us by giving us a review and recommending us to a friend. Also, we have an email address. It's contact at ashesashes.org. And we encourage you to send us your thoughts, positive or negative. We'll read them and we appreciate them. You can also find us on your favorite social media network at Ashes Ashes Cast or on Reddit at r slash Ashes Ashes Cast. Next week, we cover an important topic, something we've been working on for months, and a topic that's making headlines right now. We hope you'll tune in for that. But until then, this is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.